Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're a founder of a B2C business and currently fundraising, I run a private newsletter where I share companies to past the future guests of the show that I think are interesting. If you'd like to apply to be on the newsletter, head over to theconsumervc.com backslash startup. Our guest today is Mira Clark, who's a senior associate at Obvious Ventures. Obvious invests in startups that combine profit and purpose for a better world. Some of their investments include Beyond Meat, Care Zone, Good Eggs, and Medium. Prior to joining Obvious, Mira invested in and advised high-growth technology companies at Morgan Stanley, where she spent time in their technology investment banking supporting consumer internet and software executives through both late-stage, private placements, and initial public offerings. Mira has also scaled the firm's early-stage technology accelerator, the Multicultural Innovation Lab, focused on female and multicultural entrepreneurs. This is a terrific conversation where we discuss quite a few consumer trends that she's focused on that I think are really interesting, as well as obvious ventures. So without further ado, here's Mira. Mira, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm really excited to chat, Mike. Tell me a little bit about your journey. What attracted you initially to finance, consumer, and early stage companies in general? Well, I'm going to take you really far back and uh, we can move forward from there. Uh, I actually grew up in North Carolina as the only child of an Indian immigrant and this older hippie from California, you know, graduated from Berkeley in the 60s, you know the type. But my loving and less conventional parents sort of left me to carve my own path and figure out what made sense, whether this be my religious views or my outfits for kindergarten. So overlaying this kind of choose your own adventure discovery process with the fairly rigid societal expectations of my conservative Southern community was amazing, but it was also weird. So I was left with a lot of questions, I guess to say the least. And so I share this background with you, Mike, because these early days, you know, really played a major role and my curiosity surrounding consumer behavior and consumption habits, we kind of see across demographics. So my household was really, it was just so different from the others I spent time in, be this visiting grandparents in India, my cousins in Alabama, or even neighbors on the block. So with this foundation, I've continued to repeatedly ask the questions of what fulfills people's most pressing needs and why. So over the past 10 years, I've taken a little bit of a winding tour. Um, and through this, I've actually moved across the country five times and, you know, would not necessarily recommend it. Um, that said, I started out at Stanford, you know, one of the happiest places on earth where I studied engineering and spent my time at, you know, really nerd camp exploring what technology, venture capital and innovation even meant. And despite this buzzier off of HBO college experience post Stanford, I actually found myself returning full time to, to one of the least sexy spaces, um, sell side financial services. Um, that said, kind of despite slightly less hype, it was actually a blast. You know, I started my career on the trading floor at Morgan Stanley. I was sitting with an equities, but looking at disruptive trends impacting equity and credit markets and identifying ways to, to invest around those themes, you know, from that time, what I realized is that a lot of this disruption and innovation was happening, you know, in the private markets. And so I was eager to, to learn more about them and begin building a network there. Um, kind of based on that desire, I moved over to investment banking. So I was working in Morgan Stanley's technology 
banking group in Menlo Park, um, advising, you know, software, semiconductor, consumer internet businesses um, on various fundraising um, efforts, whether this be in the public or private markets. Um, so loved my time there. You know, as the ultimate Morgan Stanley fangirl, I wasn't quite ready to leave the place uh, post my tour of duty and banking. So rounded out my time um, working in Morgan Stanley's Multicultural Innovation Lab. So the lab at Morgan Stanley is an early stage technology accelerator that invests in women and multicultural founders, generally at the pre-seed or seed stage. So we were investing in these businesses off of Morgan Stanley's balance sheet and then bringing them in-house to work with them on scaling their efforts. Um, you know, the lab was truly amazing in terms of the impact. But I came to a point where I felt like I was really ready to graduate um, and do the thing when it came to investing. And so what drew me to the early stage ecosystem was the potential to marry this passion um, and purpose that, that I had seen. And so the opportunity to invest in and support those founders building this world that I wish existed was both inspiring and exciting. So, you know, to answer your question uh, with, with a lot of words, this approach to my personal and professional life is really what drove me to find Obvious, where our purpose is actually to back companies reimagining trillion dollar industries um, through a world positive lens. So with this approach, we really seek to transform huge sectors of the global economy in ways that move communities as well as the environments which they inhabit forward. So I honestly struggle to, to imagine a path that would be more rewarding for me personally, but yeah, that, that's kind of the winding journey to where I am today. Love it. You're an investor at Obvious. I know that Obvious is a B Corp. Tell me a little bit about your strategy as investors. Well, the B Corp label is uh, somewhat sparkly these days. Our investment approach is is actually quite simple. Um, Obvious was founded on this belief that the most valuable companies of our time will be the ones that are solving humanity's biggest problems. So. We believe that assessing the consumer landscape with this world positive lens should allow us to identify both the companies that will drive the greatest financial returns for LPs and those that are driving the greatest positive impacts on our communities and again, our environment. So as one of the few venture capital funds that is classified as a B Corp, we really consider the impact of our decisions on our employees, our customers, our suppliers, community, and the environment. So this is a pledge, you know, that many of our companies have made ranging from Ollie to, you know, the gummy vitamin business to mix uh, the salad chain here in San Francisco. So this real positive thesis that um, James and Michelle really began circulating in, in 2014 is one that we've certainly seen pick up steam as of late, you know, across the market, we've seen leaders ranging from Larry Fink to Mark Benioff really highlighting this need to marry profit and purpose in our approach to company formation, scaling, and operating. So, you know, we very much believe that this is where the future is headed. And we're excited about that fact that others are, you know, beginning to feel the same way. Walk me a little bit through your due diligence process. What are some qualities in a founder that you pay attention to the most and, and how are you thinking about early traction as well? Yeah. So as it relates to our diligence process, I like to think that we are nimble, but thorough which is a little bit of an oxymoron. You know, we really want to get to know founders. We want to get to know their businesses. That said, we recognize that they are running businesses and we don't want to get in the way of that. So kind of with this in mind, we really try to focus on asking the right questions instead of asking every question. So as I kind of think about the framework that, that we use for our meeting process, our diligence process, it almost follows a little bit of this 
HTTPS approach, if, if you think about it, you know, first, you know, first element really being hi, hello, we are obvious, here's what we stand for. You know, we are asking founders a lot of questions and we really feel like they deserve some context as well. Um, you know, we call our meetings conversations, not interrogations. So, so we like to open them up that same way. I think kind of moving on from there, we move into some of the more traditional categories. The first one for us is really team. What we are trying to answer with team is why you, why, you know, are you going to be the one that really breaks out from the pack in this category? And then I think going back to kind of serving a greater purpose, we're really focused on intent. I think that, you know, with exponential technology comes exponential responsibility. So we really want to ensure that that we believe in in this founder and their ability to do the right thing when faced with challenging decisions. Moving on from team, you know, I would say our second priority is TAM. You know, as we think about the market considerations, we're really looking at, I would say, two major buckets. The first is the market size. You know, are you worth, you know, are you addressing a multi-billion dollar market? But then we really think about the structural factors of that market. That could be the growth rates. That could be the level of fragmentation. You know, there are a few different areas that that we'll dive into that depend a little bit on, on the, the sector that we're exploring, but really trying to understand all the elements that could either help or, or hinder the growth of the business. Moving on from TAM, we then kind of move into, let's say, product or platform, you know, the more generic, is this differentiated? Do we believe that this platform or product has breakout potential? And then the final question that really seals the deal for us is this question around scalability. So when we think about scalability, we are, you know, very much focused on unity economics, your ability to, you know, swiftly enough reach reach revenue scale and as well as have the potential for an exit. I think we are increasingly seeing investors focused on profitability or seeing this flight to quality in the market. But I think, you know, it's been something we've been focused on, you know, since day one and continue to remain focused on uh, moving through the, the challenging market environments that we're facing today. How, how are you thinking about the, the early stage investing landscape and how do you think about Series A? Yeah, I think every fund has a slightly different definition and it obviously varies a bit uh, sector to sector. But for us, Series A is really, you know, a couple of things. First and foremost, you have clearly achieved product market fit. Um, you are still, of course, scaling from there, but there is, you know, enough evidence, whether it is, you know, uh, revenue scale with direct to consumer clients, some very promising pilots, if you're more of an enterprise uh, platform, we're really thinking about having that product market fit fairly demonstrated. In addition to that, I think we really think about that unit economics or scalability question at, at Series A. We, you know, want to or need to believe that your company has the ability to become profitable. You are, you know, unlikely to be profitable today and that is totally okay, but you need to have proven out those unit economics between that seed and series A round. I think we're seeing some interesting activity in the market today where people are raising seed extensions or however you want to, you know, name them or frame them. And I think that's actually a positive because it's setting them up to raise kind of the strongest series A, you know, let's say in six to 12 months and really bring on the right partners. I think that the value that a seed stage investor brings to a company is frequently different than, you know, what a series A investor brings to the table, not better or worse, just different. And so 
ensuring that your company is sort of stage aligned with the round that you're raising, I think can be really valuable, um, both in terms of, you know, your financial profile, but also in terms of the utility that you're going to get out of your, your board or your advisors. That's really helpful. So I know that one of your focuses is healthy living. Talk to me a little bit about your thesis around both physical and mental health. I had obvious. Our thesis on healthy living is really focused on reimagining our, our health and wellness systems to shift from treatment to prevention, combining anything from food as medicine to more innovative healthcare platforms like computational biology, for example. You know, across the space, we think a lot about the intertwined nature of physical and mental health because we really think that that a virtuous cycle exists there. You know, the food you're eating is going to impact your mood while your stress levels are going to impact your immunity. So as we kind of think about where we can play, we look at, you know, five primary categories. We sort of outline them as better for you food, where we're focused on brands delivering, you know, accessible, plant-based, organic you know, local fresh food. On the product side, you know, we kind of call this space good for you goods. And here we're really focused on businesses that are being redesigned to be better for you, your family and the planet. Um, on more of kind of the, the platform or, or tech heavy side, um, within our full stack healthcare vertical, um, we really are looking for tech enabled, personalized and purpose built um, platforms that are driving better patient outcomes at lower costs. Um, and then our final two categories, you know, we really think of as this idea of having a digital life well lived, where we're seeking out, you know, a new set of curated web or mobile experiences to help consumers pursue thoughtful, um, healthier lifestyles. And then finally, as I mentioned, we do spend time within computational biology where we're really excited about the potential for machine learning and big data to, to unlock new health diagnostics and therapies. So in outlining these categories, what I'm really saying, Mike, is that we see this future of healthcare as taking more of a holistic and integrated approach, both towards physical and mental health. So, you know, a lot of opportunity for innovation, and I think likely to be a lot of opportunities for, you know, funds like Obvious to deploy capital in the coming years. How do you think about portfolio construction and managing since you invest in, for example, food and beverage products and then also invest in software platforms? Yeah, you know, at Obvious, I would say we are fairly thesis driven in our investment approach. And so each member of our team has, I would almost label them as majors and minors. Um, and so core areas or core pillars that, that they are most focused on. Um, most of the team comes from, you know, strong operating backgrounds, building companies like Apple and Twitter and Patagonia. And so they bring a lot of this perspective and expertise to the companies that, that we're investing in through the investment process, as well as to, you know, more importantly, advising them as they scale. Um, and so I would say we are really tapping that, that expertise of our individual team members at times, team members coming from different backgrounds to get a diverse uh, to get diverse perspectives at the table, but really thinking about you know ensuring that we are not taking this you know spray and pray mentality, which which certainly works for some, but is not the game that we play. But taking a more thoughtful, um, research backed approach to to how we invest and, and and deploy capital. And I always find it interesting the investors that manage really well that are able to invest in both physical goods 
as well as software be and manage that portfolio since the return profile might be different? A few thoughts scattered across the board. I think your point on the return profile is an important one to consider. And I think we really view it to be a strength. You know, the return that you are getting on a food brand is very different than, you know, a drug discovery platform. That said, you know, the risk profile is also different. And so as we kind of think about, you know, managing risk while also driving returns, we think that the diversification is actually, you know, a nice thing for LPs. I think as we think about having expertise across, let's say, branded products and software, you know, if you go under the hood with our portfolio, I think there are, you know, many, many more similarities than one might expect. I think, you know, great example would be thinking about a branded company like Neoko's, um, you know, plant-based cheese, um, very much a branded food product. If we look at more of, you know, a software-like platform or really, a, you know, a managed consumer marketplace, let's take GoodEggs, for example. And so very different business models, you know, very different, you know, challenges that the businesses face. That said, Neoko's sells on GoodEggs. The, the challenges that GoodEggs faces are ones that could be caused by Miyoko's or at least will be well understood by Miyoko's. And so we really think about kind of how can we find those synergies across categories and, you know, leverage our learnings from one area to, you know, boost outcomes in another. And so we see it, it more as more of a synergistic approach than it, than it might appear, you know, at, at face value. And so I would say that's really how we think about you know, diversification um, across subsectors and really positioning ourselves to to drive the most value, again, both for our LPs, but also for for our founders. Totally. That I, I, I think it's really impressive. Something we spoke about as well before is, you know, and something I know that, that you're also uh, passionate about um, is the future of social and how we're at the end of this hype cycle. How do you think, how do you see folks of interacting online changing. Yeah, I know. Love that you bring this up. Um, you know, I think it goes without saying that our aspirations and our expectations across many vectors came crashing down in 2020. You know, similarly, we're now really seeing this reset across social networks themselves. You know, it's it's no longer cool to post a heavily airbrushed photo from the beaches of Bali with a Negroni in hand. You know, this bubble of almost vapid entertainment has, has been popped in my opinion. And I, I honestly don't know the extent to which it will come back. Um, that said, there are certainly areas where we are seeing an uptick in activity today. You know, from my perspective, what's really driving traffic traffic is digestible content on, you know, topics ranging from anti-racism to, to COVID containment. Um, some of this is happening as text and Instagram stories, while we're also obviously seeing, you know, the emergence of new platforms, let's say like Clubhouse, for example, that are elevating similar topics of consequence. Um, what these social behaviors really, really highlight to me is a shift from passive entertainment to engagement, which, which I love. We might, you know, still be on the couch, but at least our minds are, are moving. So... What the landscape looks like post-COVID obviously remains to be seen. You know, will IRL social interactions be reintegrated into our weekly routines? Absolutely. Um, none of these digital solutions can really replace 
body language, eye contact, or, or even the pheromones that, <laughs> that drive the spark of a meaningful one-on-one -on -one meeting, um, at least not yet. That said, I do think and, and I hope that some of these new engagement driving social platforms will serve as, as permanent parts of our personal and potentially even professional lives. Technology doesn't need to replace, you know, every aspect of our lives, but but it can certainly it can certainly enhance them. I think that's all really really well said. You know, because obviously we're living in COVID, so there's there's so much, if not all, interaction right now is happening online. How are you thinking about how this will continue post COVID? Yeah, post COVID, I think we are really going to see we see two possible outcomes. I think one, which we've seen with Gen Z even pre-COVID, is that individuals will have two unique networks, their, their online network and their offline network. They might drive very different you know, value from each of them, but they stand somewhat separately, similar to the way that our personal and professional networks have, have you know, stood as separate pillars, um, at least for many people to date. You know, on the flip side, what we could see um, and what, you know, I think investors you know, are increasingly chatting about is this idea of can your offline and online, you know, networks merge? I think that you're seeing platforms, you know, newer platforms, let's say like Lunch Club, for example, that that is really showing this almost omni-channel approach to relationship building and, and meaningful interaction. And so I think that is that is something that we are continuously monitoring um, because we do think that that both legs of the stool are important. So structure-wise, you know, remains to be seen. But you know, we certainly see you know this new normal not being not being our steady state, and so this creates the potential either for these you know newer platforms to continue to scale, or for frankly someone else to come in entirely and and displace them all. So very much an area that we are we are excited about monitoring over the next, you know, couple of weeks, couple of months, couple of quarters. I think those are a really good point. We, we've exchanged a couple of emails about this as well. Uh, but why don't you think about how are you thinking about the future of the influencer? True influence really comes from authenticity, authority, unique ideas and imagination. You know, I think it goes without saying that Influencers, as we think about them today, are, are becoming increasingly commoditized. They wear the same clothes, they do the same things, and they kind of post the same pictures. Um, and as a result, they are having a harder and harder time convincing increasingly critical customers, be they, be they Gen Z or honestly even boomers, um, to buy whatever ideas or, or eyeshadows that, that they're kind of talking, you know, moving forward, it's my belief. And, and again, my hope that, that we will see true thought leaders emerging as the new influencers, you know, the Greta Thunbergs, the, the Michelle Obamas of the world. And we've already begun to, to see this transition. People that are, you know, cool because they're actually doing cool things and, and driving meaningful change. I really believe that the influencers of tomorrow should more closely align with, with the values of tomorrow, which are looking like they will be more closely aligned with one's micro and macro impact than, than their latest trip to the mall, because, you know, it sounds like the malls are dying anyways, based on, based on what I've been hearing. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm actually excited about what these future voices sound like and look like, because I do think that they will be, you know, more diverse and more thoughtful than a lot of what, what we've seen over the past couple of years. 
I'm also really excited too with the future of the influencer about being more vulnerable as well, I think online. With these new brands that have been developing and especially when their target audience is Gen Z, how do you think about authenticity and sustainability and being customer centric? I think these three terms, it seems like have become buzzwords, but wanted to know how you think about them. I think that many of these trends really come back to that, that B Corp approach that we discussed earlier of always considering one's impact on employees, customers, suppliers, communities, and environment. I think that in today's environment, we've increasingly seen the role of actually employees acting as as the voice of authenticity, which I think is great from an empowerment perspective. You know, so yes, at a high level, is, um, these words to me indeed do highlight the, the future of consumer, but I think breaking them down a bit, as I think about sustainability, I really am thinking about minimizing one's negative impact on the environment. You know, from products, this could be raw materials, packaging, what have you, for experiences, this could be one's impact on a country or community, I think, a lot of this comes down to building habitats that enable us to leave this planet better than we found it, which, you know, is obviously top of mind for, for Gen Z. Um, you know, I think when it comes down to authenticity, from my perspective, it, it's somewhat simple. It's, it's practicing what you preach. I think that a lot of companies have tried to do this through marketing, despite some pretty major cracks um, under the surface. And I think that, you know, we're seeing those cracks emerge and some of these companies crumble. And so I think that, again, a lot of this coming not only from what the company is saying, but what their employees are saying is an increasingly interesting angle um, for all of us to watch. I think, you know, to your last question surrounding taking the customer-centric approach, I really do think that companies should be looking at their customer journey in two actually distinct parts, kind of before use and then during and after use. You know, over the past several years, a somewhat alarming number of companies that have focused on this before use journey. They've funneled money into marketing, press, you know, you name it. And customers have purchased their products, be they digital or physical, only to find out that they kind of suck. Um, and at the end of the day, a lot of what they're peddling is junk, you know, to the theme that, that we discussed earlier, you know, moving forward in an environment that will increasingly be defined by this idea of conscious consumption, I think that customer-centric companies will be focusing on that second phase of the customer journey. So prioritizing the actual experience of the product or, or platform. So by measuring oneself against kind of this degree of delight, you know, founders are really building with this mindset that will continue to, you know, drive them to approve upon their product. Um, and accordingly, really begin to build a flywheel that keeps our customer coming back for more. So it's kind of how I think about, you know, the relationship between um, those three, those three factors um, in today's environment. Yeah, a number of good points there. Read your article, The Gratification Migration, which um, discusses the changes in consumer behavior during COVID and how we're at a bit of a, co a crossroads between healthy habits. What do you mean by that? Where to begin? Um, I guess I'll start by saying that these past few months have highlighted some serious tension in our consumption habits. You know, looking at my own deliveries just this week, I've had a Soul Cycle bike delivered on Monday and a couple of bottles of house delivered on Tuesday. So, am I an athlete? Am I an alcoholic? You know, hopefully more of the former than the latter, but, but who knows? Um, I think what it comes down to is you know, do I want to be physically and mentally fit? Yes. But do I also feel compelled to binge, be it on sugar or social media? A hundred percent. 
Um, you know, as we slowly come out of lockdown, I think folks will be reevaluating these habits more than ever before. You know, all of our operating assumptions have effectively been reset. So it's up to us to almost redesign our, our personal playbooks. You know, it's our hypothesis and obvious that the best decisions one can make are the ones that drive better physical and mental health outcomes because, you know, in winding up this wellness wheel, individuals are fueling their tanks as opposed to, you know, slowly, slowly depleting them. So it's our hope that over the long run, the highest quality sources of fulfillment will also be the ones driving the greatest network effects. So really, you know, a win for consumers and and a win for the companies that are capitalizing on this sort of consumption. So Again, you know, not <laughs> to drive the point home as we think back to that that B Corp mentality. I think that's that's really what it's all about from from a strategy and scaling perspective. It is really interesting these two trends that are going on. I know we covered a lot here, but wh- are there any other or some other consumer trends that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, I think you know another area that I'm really excited about that we continue to dig in deeper on is this bro- idea of broadening access to health. You know, those of us in New York and San Francisco with access to these beautifully designed brick and mortar boxes, bringing us, you know, next gen experiences across dentistry, fertility, you name it. But what's crazy is that most of the country doesn't even know that such quality of care exists because why, why would they? It's not like they have access. And so moving forward, you know, we really believe that this can and must must change. Um, as we've seen the rapid rise in telemedicine, we really cha- think that change is coming to consumer healthcare finally. Um, and what we're now excited about from here is other horizontal solutions for independent clinicians nationwide. Think of them as, you know, almost operating systems of sorts. So will my friend Betsy's, you know, OBGYN in Louisiana have the same dip candle as mine in the marina? Maybe not. But should she be able to expect the same quality of care? You know, I think so. And we're seeing a lot of, you know, top-notch talent building in the space these days to make these dreams a reality. And so that's kind of top of top of my shopping list um, from an investment perspective. So so eager to see how it plays out. That's awesome. Thanks for thanks for sharing that. What's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital? I honestly love this space. Um, and love so many of the people um, working in the ecosystem. That said, I think one one element that I struggle with is this this emphasis on ego. I think that as it relates to you know highlighting the importance of conviction or or celebrating it, there's a lot of you know people walking around saying, "I'm right, I'm right, I'm right," and you know, I, I struggle with that. I think going back to our conversation or our comments on vulnerability, what I actually think is most powerful is the ability to admit when I'm wrong. You know, Brene Brown obviously has been one of the, you know, at the forefront of this conversation surrounding the strength and vulnerability. And I think as we're continuing to see millennials care about this, Gen Z cares about this. And, you know, I certainly care about this, you know, as it relates to Silicon Valley and the venture ecosystem, as a space that touts itself as admiring innovation, I think that we actually can be quite slow to evolve. And so my hope for, for the next five years is that we really do see a, a you know, steady eddy transition um, in this broader and more accepting direction. I completely agree. I think for any change to happen, you have to be open. What's, what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? 
Yeah, I am such a book nerd. Um, I think I read, I don't know, 21 or 22 books this year. So I love this question. Um, I would say professional inspiration is, is pretty easy. For me, it is definitely setting the table by, by Danny Meyer. You know, in the book, Danny kind of walks the reader through his journey of founding many of, you know, my restaurant crushes ranging from Gramercy Tavern to 11 Madison Park. And he expands upon his key to success, which is this idea of, of enlightened hospitality. I don't want to ruin the book for, for your listeners, but for anyone seeking a fresh take on how to pick up momentum and, and the dopamine flywheels across both personal and professional dimensions, I think that Danny's concept of enlightened hospitality is really a must explore. Um, on the personal side, I'm going to highlight my number one recommendation for 2020. Um, it's a book called uh, Boys and Sex by Peggy Orenstein. You know, in Boys and Sex, Peggy uh, really illuminates the toxicity and in, in our definitions and expectations of masculinity today. And, you know, on the back of that, she then provides some really paradigm-shifting recommendations on how we can reframe the conversation to set, uh, you know, set us up for su collective success moving forward. So, in a world where we're increasingly understanding, you know, the need to rewrite our own operating manuals, I would really highly, highly recommend um, this book. Um, truly, you know, the best book I've read this year and honestly, and probably in recent years. Wow. No one's mentioned that book yet. So uh, really excited to add it to the, to the website. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders? One piece of advice, no pressure. You know, I think my, my one piece of advice would really be to show love every day. I think that's showing love for your team, um, showing love for your customers and honestly showing love for your family building a company is hard and it realistically takes a village. So inspiring and aligning the incentives of all parties involved is truly one of the easiest ways, in my opinion, to boost your, your chances of success and with no CapEx required at that. Love that. Love that. That's a great piece of advice. And I don't think actually another, another investor yet has, uh, has mentioned that. Well, Mira, this has been so fun. Thanks again for coming on the show. It was so great having you. Thank you, Mike. It's been my treat. And there you have it. It was really great fun having Mira. I highly recommend you following her on Twitter at it's Mira Clark and also checking out her blog posts on medium. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.